This podcast is sponsored by the Davenant Institute and Davenant Hall, reimagining theological education. Visit davenanthall.com. The Davenant Institute seeks to retrieve the riches of classical Protestantism to renew and build up the contemporary church. Key to this mission is their educational arm, Davenant Hall. In an age where much theological education both overlooks the riches of church history and keeps students in debt, Davenant Hall is reimagining theological education. Davenant Hall takes full advantage of digital technology to make high-quality theological education affordable via online courses. Students can simply audit a single class or enroll in a degree program, including subject-specific certificates, PhD supervision, and the flagship MLIT program, which includes pastoral tracks for Baptist, Anglican, and Reformed or Presbyterian ministry. Enroll in classes at any time during the academic year. Knowing that in-person fellowship is key to Christian formation, Davenant hosts regular residentials at their study center in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of South Carolina. Registration for spring term 2024 classes running April to June is now open. Register by March 27th. Fees start at just $225 for a 10-week class with a two-hour Zoom class from expert professors each week. Spring term classes include Male and Female in Modernity with Alistair Roberts, The Reformation and the Modern World with Michael Lynch, Philosophy as a Way of Life with Joseph Minnick and more. Visit DavenantHall.com to find out more. That's DavenantHall.com. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to the Mortification of Spin. It's a slightly unusual episode today as I'm having to fly solo. Uh, Amy Bird, the housewife theologian, is off pursuing her solo career, speaking at our friend Chad Vegas's church. And Todd Pruitt's had to drop out at the last minute, claiming that he's having to respond to a pastoral emergency. So it's just me this week. And we have a very special guest today, an unusual guest perhaps for our constituency, but somebody whose voice I think is very important for Protestant evangelicals to hear. I've argued in numerous places over the last couple of years that the future of religious freedom in the United States and perhaps the West as a whole depends to a large extent on the attitude of the Roman Catholic Church. I think the Roman Catholic Church has a political and social presence today, which no other church has. Even in our secular times, the Roman Catholic Church commands some level of authority in the public square. And intellectually, she has a depth of social teaching upon which to draw, which is the envy, I think, of the rest of us. When I look at my bookshelves and I think of the, the great intellectuals that have helped me think through many of the issues currently pressing in on society and the church, it's names like Robert George, Michael Hanby, Ryan T. Anderson, Tony Esselin, 
and Rusty Reno. The latter two have been on the podcast, of course, in the last year. It's those names that come to mind, and they're all Roman Catholic thinkers. So the big question, I think, is will the hierarchy hold the key line on key issues? And intellectually, who are the Roman Catholic intellectuals and thinkers and leaders whom Protestants, evangelical Protestants, can read to their benefit? And this brings me to my friend, Archbishop Charles Chaput, who has been Archbishop of Philadelphia since 2011. He's also the first Native American Archbishop. Archbishop Chaput has taken some tough and hard stands in Philadelphia. He has clearly the administrative and political backbone to stand on the right side of the right issues. I remember him saying to me once that it's never hard to do the right thing, only tiring. But one of the things that marks Archbishop Chaput out is that he also has the intellect to engage the culture. And he has a new book, Strangers in a Strange Land, Living the Catholic Faith in a Post-Christian World, which was published this February by Henry Holt. The book's unashamedly Catholic, but I think it's a book for Protestants because, first of all, it draws deeply on the writings and the thought of St. Augustine, a common source for both Protestant and Catholic theology. Secondly, it offers a fascinating critical analysis of how American and Western culture has come to be in the sorry state it now is. And thirdly, precisely because it is unashamedly Catholic, I think it offers us as Protestants a model for how we might engage the world and the culture from our own distinctive position. Archbishop Chaput, that was a long and rambling introduction, but it's a great pleasure to have you on the podcast today. It's wonderful to be with you, Carl, and I'm happy that one of the characteristics you described when you introduced me was calling me a friend. That means a lot, and I'm really happy for that. Oh, I'm glad to hear you say that, Archbishop. Your, your emails to me and, and the contact we've had over the last couple of years has been a sort of immense uh, encouragement and, and solace to me at times. So thanks very much. In fact, while we're on that, I wonder my first question is going to be this. I, I seem to remember that a month or two ago, you sent me an email that promised me that if ever you became Pope, you would actually make me a cardinal, even if I didn't convert to Roman Catholicism. I wonder if you could confirm that for our listeners. Uh, you can, I am happy to confirm that. It's true. Of course, it's not very likely. <laughs> and if it were likely, I probably would be more hesitant to say that. But I promise you that if I become Pope, I will make you a cardinal. Excellent. Well, I have it in writing and I have it recorded now, so I will you hold you to that. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, the book, it's a wonderful book. You gave me the honor of reading it in manuscript, so I read it a couple of months ago. I've reread it again since it's come out. Um, wonder if you'd like to give our listeners some of the background. What is it that motivated you to write this book? What were you hoping to achieve by it? You know, I think most preachers and in the same way most writers are actually preaching to themselves or writing to themselves, you know, preaching about things that they're aware of, preaching about things they're concerned about, preaching about things that uh, draw their attention and make their lives uh, committed. And I think that's what I did with this book. I've been thinking about the issues that I'm dealing with in the book for many, many years. I've been a bishop in three different parts of the United States, in South Dakota, which is a very conservative part of the United States, in Denver, where you find a lot of the cutting edge uh, of cultural development, and now in Philadelphia, which is uh, unique in itself, being part of the the Acela Corridor, as they say, with its own issues. 
And in my experiences, I've seen as I've moved around the country, the fact that uh, we're not living in the same country that I grew up in uh, as a boy in Kansas. That's where I'm from originally. I'm 72 years old, so I was I was born in 1944, and uh, I grew up in the 50s, and which was a very peaceful time culturally in our country, at least for those of us who were in the center part of the United States and weren't a part of a minority group. I um, experienced, of course, uh, the sexual revolution of the 1960s and 70s, which uh, no one could escape in any part of the country. And I've seen the gradual change in our culture over the last 60 years, which make it a a very different place than it was when I grew up. And uh, the title of the book, Strangers in a Strange Land, is taken from the book of Exodus, a quote from Moses, who experienced himself in that kind of situation at one time. It also is a title of a science fiction book that I read when I was in high school. It probably in some ways um, was on my mind because of that. But it, it is difficult to live the Catholic faith in what many people refer to as our post-Christian world. I'm sure it's true for anyone who's a serious Christian. Even though our country, you know, in its in his foundation was a marriage of enlightenment thought and Protestant reflection, Calvinist reflection, actually, for the most part, even though that's, that's our origin, we've moved very far from that now. And many of our fellow citizens in the 21st century wouldn't acknowledge or, or actually even recognize that theological background. Yeah. Do you find, I mean, I, I got the impression reading the book that you're responding to what you clearly experience as a disorientation that many Catholics are now experiencing, certainly many Protestants, evangelicals are experiencing. Things seem to be happening so fast. It's very hard to, to see the bigger picture because, for example, gay marriage was only approved by the Supreme Court less than two years ago. And yet transgenderism now carries all be- before it. There is this disorienting experience. Is, is that part of what you're trying to get at in the book as well? Absolutely. You know, the changes in my lifetime have happened way too fast for people to absorb them and understand the meaning very easily. The changes have actually been also very radical. And when changes are radical, people have a hard time integrating those changes into their lives. And it takes place on all levels, even changing what it means, what people say it means to be an American. You know, the changes in, in legal philosophy obvious changes in sexual mores. Demography is is very different now than it used to be. The educational philosophy in our schools, which, you know, forms the next generations, has changed uh, radically. Economically, things are always in flux. And of course, I think the biggest change of the last 50 or 60 years is technology. Hmm. You know, for example, two very little things like transistors, which are very tiny, and the birth control pill, which is also very tiny, have had huge consequences in in terms of the way we think and the way we live our lives. And, you know, both of them are developments of human efforts to understand the world around us and, and to deal and manipulate that world technologically. Yeah. One of the things I liked about the book was that I think there can be a temptation. I won't mention any names here, but I'm probably actually guilty of it myself. There can be a temptation to damn modernity unequivocally. And yet what I liked in your book was you're clearly sensitive to the great benefits that modernity has brought, the great benefits that technology has brought, even while acknowledging that 
this doesn't come without a cost. There's a price. There's a, there's a difficulty here. To put it in extreme terms, the, the technology that brings us the automobile also brings us the gas chambers as Auschwitz. It's that kind of tension, I think, we see in modernity, which is often very, very difficult to navigate. Exactly. Even our conversation today, which is, I hope, for the glory of God and the good of others, is by way of a computer, which is also the source of uh, so much of the pornography that's part of so many people's lives, both men and women today. You know, one of my friends who has a son with special needs has compared the way we care for children with disabilities today with the way we did in the past. And we're much better today at finding a place in society for those who do have physical and mental disabilities. But the same people who've done that have also more or less eliminated young children with Down syndrome by finding that before they're born and aborting those children. So, you know, it it goes both directions. A human spirit is, is full of generosity, but also is capable of great evil. Yeah, that perhaps, I I think the background to your answer there reminds me of something you said, very striking in the Erasmus lecture in 2014 in New York. I was in the audience that evening. I think it was the first time I ever ever heard you. And you made a comment. I can't remember if it was in the lecture or if it was in the question and answer afterwards, which intrigued me. You made a comment to the effect that, that gay marriage was a bigger cultural or social watershed than abortion. It grabbed my imagination. I seem to remember you got a bit of hostile pushback from at least one member of the audience on that. But I wonder if you could explain for the listeners the kind of thinking that lies behind seeing gay marriage as such a critical watershed in our culture. You know, I think it actually, this is probably a very Catholic perspective, but it really goes back to contraception, even uh, further back historically than the embrace of gay marriage. But when we began to separate procreation from the sexual act, which is what contraception is all about, it changes the meaning of the sexual act. It becomes an act of love, maybe a, an act of relief, a release rather. Can it be an act of very generous self-giving, but it's no longer a procreative act. And when that happens, procreation is separated from sexual activity, then relationships that are not essentially procreative, like a relationship between two men, or the procreation between a couple that's not married, why would they ever be considered wrong if uh, procreation isn't an essential part of the sexual embrace? And so it changes the way we begin to think about love and marriage, what family means. So it has a lot of unintended consequences that we're, beginning, we're discovering and, and living with today. Even this whole question of transgenderism goes back to that. If we can change the, the meaning of our fertility or, or our sexual natures, why can't we change who we are from being a man to being a woman? You know, I, I know those of us, those who are listening to us wouldn't embrace any of that. But it, I think it all ultimately is a result of the separation of appropriation from the sexual act. And that has huge consequences that we're starting to experience on all levels of society today. Yeah, that's an interesting answer. Sometimes asked about gay marriage in classes at the seminary, and I always say the Protestant critique is going to be a little different to the Catholic critique, precisely because of that that question of contraception. Yeah, as a Protestant, I feel the pinch of that. That is uh, that is an argument that I think too many Protestants dismiss out of hand, but actually does carry uh, significant weight with it. This. 
disjoining of the unitive act of sex from the procreative act, I do think it is metaphysically more significant than many Protestants allow it to be. So that's a fascinating answer. Would you also say that underlying, to, to go back to the abortion versus gay marriage issue, there's a sense in which abortion is a debate about when personhood begins. And if you look at the writings of Peter Singer, Peter Singer doesn't deny life in the womb. What he denies, it seems to me, is personhood right. in the womb. The question of gay marriage, and even more so the question of transgenderism, raises in a very powerful way the question of human personhood. Would you exactly. agree with that? I, I would agree exactly. You articulated that very well and very clearly. That's exactly what's at stake. If we can change ourselves from male to female, what does it mean to be a human person? How closely integrated is our gender to our personhood? Those yeah. questions are really important questions. Yeah, and that connects one of my favorite writers, though he's almost impossible to read, Philip Reef, with his concept of psychological man. And when he writes The Triumph of the Therapeutic in 1966, it seems to me that he could not possibly have known how precisely prophetic he was going to be about how human beings would become just psychological constructs. We are, to use sort of Catholic terminology, a bundle of accidents around a substantial intellect, essentially, <laughs> uh, if I yes. can use that. We've transubstantiated ourselves, yes. uh, if you like, into, into that which we are not. That raises uh, another question. Um, we have a mutual friend, Fran Meyer. I joke with Rusty Reno that when Fran and I get together for lunch, you can feel the pessimistic vibes as far away as Rusty's office in Manhattan. You could probably see the black cloud on the horizon. Um, Fran is, I like meeting with Fran because I think he's the one man who's more pessimistic than I am in the entire world. <laughs> but you have some harsh things to say about pessimism. You paint in many ways in this book quite a bleak picture of the culture, but you refuse pessimism as the option. In fact, you say cynicism and despair. I think at some point you say, if, if St. Augustine was here today and looking at our society, he would say your besetting sins are not really materialism, they're cynicism and despair. I wonder if you could expand on that and also give us some idea of why we shouldn't be cynical or despairing at this point. Well, first of all, a word about Fran. Fran's a very close friend of mine, and we all tease him about being pessimistic. But I think at the root, Fran isn't pessimistic. He's just uh, very honest and realistic. And I think that's always the beginning point of any real uh, possible reflection towards how we can make things better. Yeah. You know, in the, in the Catholic Church, I don't know if it's true in your community, but every time we gather for worship, the first thing we do, without exception, except maybe once or twice in the church calendar is we begin with an act of contrition of some kind, confessing our sins. And some people looking at that from outside would say, well, aren't they pessimistic people? They always begin with sin. But, you know, for those of us who are believers and, you know, know that, that we've sinned against God from the very beginning, it's really an act of realism. And realism is a platform by which we can actually embrace change. In the book, I talk about the difference between optimism and hope. And I think that's how I can get at your question about despair yeah. and cynicism. You know, optimism is feeling everything's going to work out. And we've met people like this in our lives. And in some ways, they're very irritating because it isn't true. <laughs> you know, and if they're always optimistic, they're somehow not dealing with reality. Hope, on the other hand, is a Christian virtue. And what it really is, is energy to make a difference in the world. 
It's confidence that the future is in God's hands and that God uses us as instruments for making that future a better place, a, a better experience. So hope can drive us to be actors in the world and instruments of transformation and change. I use a traditional quote from St. Augustine, which we know is not found in his writings, but it's attributed to him. He said to have said that hope has two beautiful daughters, anger and courage. You know, anger about how things are and how they should be different and the courage to do something about it. I think that's why hope is a characteristic of Christians. Faith, hope, and charity are the major virtues of Christian life. You know, faith in the reality of God and confidence in his love for us. Charity, which is in driving force to love others, as well as to be engaged in that mutual exchange of love with God. But then hope is the energy for the future, where we try to enter into a future that's uh, where despair is overcome and evil is transformed into good, darkness into light. So you think the church then, our churches need to be beacons of hope, essentially. You know, it sounds as if, were you not a Christian, you don't have any hope in this world. Would you say that that is a fair assessment? I, I think that uh, it'd be harder for people who are not Christian and who are realistic to have any confidence in the future, because yeah. it really does seem like we've messed things up very badly. But, you know, God surprises us. Optimism and pessimism are attitudes that don't allow for surprises. You know, optimists don't think there's need for it, and pessimists don't think it'll ever happen. But God is a God of surprises, and uh, sometimes things happen that we don't think are possible because of his merciful love. Well, next time I'm having lunch with Fran, then I remember that we're actually just realists, not pessimists. As, yes. Uh, as... <laughs> We're enjoying each other's company. Now, the sexual revolution, you've already alluded to that a couple of times. Of course, any contemporary account of modern culture, positive or negative, is going to have to put the sexual revolution in uh, pole position in some ways for describing the, the world in which we now live. And there are a couple of quotations from your book that I'm going to read. One of them is very short. The other one is much longer that I found immensely helpful and very, very striking. The first is this. You say the crime of the modern sexual regime is that it robs eros or eros of its meaning and love of its grandeur. I think I know what you mean by that, but perhaps you could unpack that for, for the listeners. I'll, I'll say it again. The crime of the modern sexual regime is that it robs eros of its meaning and love of its grandeur. Well, you know, if nothing is uh, real other than what can be demonstrated scientifically, all romance leaves human life. You know, it's, you don't really love others, you just think you do. It's the chemicals that make you feel a certain way rather than your heart, your spirit actually being engaged in an in a adventure of romance with someone else or even with God. And so I, I think that you know, the, the kind of uh, human love relationships that have led to poetry would be very difficult to um, ex experience, or certainly would be difficult to be enraptured by or write about if you're caught up in, in a um, materialistic view of the world around us. You know, I think God has made us for much greater things. And romantic love is in some ways a symbol of the kind of uh, adventure of love that God wants to have with each one of us as well. So if all of that is just the, the work of our imagination, the result of uh, chemicals, what meaning does life really have? 
Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. I, as you were saying that, my mind went to, of all people, Ludwig Wittgenstein. At the end of the Tractatus, he makes that enigmatic statement that, you know, whereof we cannot speak, thereof we must be silent, which Bertrand Russell read as uh, logical positivism, as, as a kind of empiricist statement. But I wonder if what Wittgenstein was really saying there was that the some of the most important things in life can't actually be articulated with mere words. I, I love the way you move to poetry there, because it seems to me that great poetry is bending words to carry weight and meaning that they do not typically have. Um, exactly. And, you know, you listen to a, a Chopin Nocturne or something like that. It's saying something that simply can't be communicated with, with mere words. So I, that was a, a – the poetry analogy is, is quite beautiful there. And I would absolutely agree. I think that sex has been robbed of all mystery. I mean, it's just become a, a recreation, not something that – that is the lifelong seal of a lifelong bond between a man and a woman committed to being friends, fellowshipping together and to raising children. Right. You I know, think. I'm a celibate. And when I talk about these things, people sometimes say, what do you know about it? And uh, quite honestly, I don't have personal experience of it. I rely on, well, what I read and conversations I've had with others who have very happy marriages. And, you know, the some of the most beautiful things written about human sexuality, from my perspective, were written by Pope John Paul II, who also was a celibate. And perhaps our distance from it personally gives us a curiosity and also a um, an objective um, understanding that sometimes is missing by those who are caught up in the messy part of love as well. Because it's, it's always messy, too, as well as beautiful. Oh, yes. Having been married 27 years, I can certainly <laughs> comment on that. And again, your, your reference there to John Paul II is fascinating. Uh, a couple of months ago, uh, it must be nearly 20 years ago, Katrina had a miscarriage. And a couple of months ago, I came across a passage that I read to her, which was describing the, the relationship that a woman feels to the life growing in her womb. And I read it to her and I said, what do you think of that? And she said, that's exactly how it was when I was pregnant. And that's exactly how I felt about the child that didn't come to terms. And she said, uh, who wrote that? And I said, well, it was John Paul II. This is a quotation <laughs> from one of his pastoral letters. I can't remember exactly where it came from. And she was up to her comment was, but he was the Pope. He was celibate. How could he possibly have known? And then she drew a rather unfortunate comparison between his sensitivity and my sensitivity, which uh, <laughs> I, I didn't come out super well of, I'm afraid. But, but yeah. Well, you know, John Paul II spent a lot of time with young couples when he was a young priest and young bishop. And so many of his writings about the theology of the body come in some kind of seedling way, at least, from those conversations and those relationships. Yeah. And I think that's, again, something else. I can't remember where I read this by you. I think it was a, it may have been an address you gave at the University of Notre Dame when you talked about hearing in the confessional the carnage of the sexual revolution. And I remember thinking that's a graphic example. There are those, the Hollywood types who present the sexual revolution as fun. They have the money for it to be fun. They can escape the consequences. But down on the streets of Philadelphia, that's where you see the, the wreckage that the sexual revolution has brought, say, to the African-American community, the catastrophic levels of one-parent families. I mean, you see this every day in your pastoral role, right, I would guess. Right, right. and it's just the emptiness of non-marital sexual relationships are so 
obvious when you hear confessions. You know, one of the things I've been bringing to the attention of our Catholic community is the increased impact of pornography on women. The reason I know it's true is because over the last five or six years or so, many more women are confessing struggles with pornography than whatever the case in the past. So it's really based on lived weekly experience for me. I hear confessions every week at our cathedral prior to the Sunday evening service. And I ask these young women, how is this possible? Why are women getting more interested in it? And to a person, they've told me it's because it's being directed at them by those who produce it in ways it was never directed at them before. You know, young women have years-long struggles with pornography now as well as men. And that has a huge impact on marriages. I wonder what you'd think about this as an idea, but I've said this a couple of times to people. I'm not convinced that the primary problem with pornography is lust. That definitely is a problem. But I wonder if the real problem is that it just teaches you to think of the other person as a tool for your pleasure, as merely an object for you to do with what you will. It absolutely divorces sex from any kind of personal relationship or obligation whatsoever. And that seems to me to be, in some ways, the most wicked thing, because that has implications far beyond just viewing the pornographic image. It's going to bleed over into how you treat your next door neighbor, how you treat your wife, how you interact socially with everybody you come across. Exactly. And also it undermines people's self-confidence because the the people who they invite to do these pornographic movies and the like are always the best looking people and with endurance that nobody else would ever have sexually. And, you know, young men are comparing themselves to that and feeling very inadequate. And, you know, it leads to all kinds of things with them, you know, just fear of of having real relationships because they can't perform in ways that uh, these actors can perform. And that really does undermine their willingness to enter into serious relationships that would lead to marriage. It's a bit like transgenderism. I think we have no idea of the carnage this is going to wreak on society in the long run. We're only just becoming aware of the potential at this point. I think I think it was Rod Dreher some months ago used the language of we have a generation of people growing up who've based it in pornography. And that struck me as a powerful and terrifying image. And we don't know where that's going to lead or where it's going to end. We have no idea. Yeah. The second quotation touches perhaps, and this allows us to take the sexual discussion in a more positive direction, because I'm guessing in the Catholic Church, as in the Protestant Church, and one of the, the issues I see as a pastor is perhaps a rising number of single Older single people in in congregations, marriage, people don't seem to be getting married with quite the same ease as they used to. And it means that more and more Christians are looking at the single life as possibly their maybe unwanted calling. You have a great passage in the book on on singleness and purity. And I'm going to read it. It'll take a, a little while to read because it's a long passage. But I'd love you to to offer some reflections for the listeners on this. And the passage reads as follows. Given the hypersexualized nature of today's culture, when we think of purity, we usually think of sexual purity. And thinking of sexual purity, we typically focus on abstinence. So purity somehow transforms into not experiencing a thing we want to experience. This is a distortion. Purity is about wholeness or integrity. It means that the body, mind, heart, and soul are rightly ordered toward God. Every element of who we are is doing its part to bring us to union with God, which is our ultimate happiness. 
Given the strength of the sexual desires we all feel, rightly acting on those desires is a key part of maintaining purity. For single people and celibates, as we noted earlier in these pages, it means offering those desires up to God and seeking to channel them in our love and service for others, end quote. You're writing as a Roman Catholic archbishop, but I read that and I thought, yes, that's something I'd never seen before. I'd been allowing my own thinking about purity to be set by the world. It was not doing something. Here you present sexual purity in such wonderfully positive terms. I wonder if you could perhaps just expand a little bit on that. Well, I I remember when I was a kid and first discovering what sexuality was really about. You know, when I always wanted to be a priest, even when I was very, very young, celibacy is never a problem before you reach puberty because you have no idea what it what it actually means. But I I remember when I was beginning to understand all of that, the church would refer to people in, in a marriage relationship as being called to chaste marriage. And it didn't make sense to me at first because chastity had to do with not having sex and marriage had to do with having sex. So what does it mean to have a chaste marriage? And then, you know, as uh, time went on and I came to a deeper understanding of uh, Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, when he talks about blessed are the pure of heart for they shall see God. I saw that, you know, purity of heart isn't just about our bodies, about sexual relationships. It's about having... um, the right relationship with God and the right relationship with our neighbor, including the right relationship with our spouse and making sure that all of our desires and our passions are balanced and in line with the human dignity that God's given us. So, you know, the way you love your wife sexually or love your husband sexually should be a a pure love where you're not using them for yourself. And even in the, you know, in the, in the beauty of the marital embrace, there is a way where that becomes, you know, somehow a share in the life of God, not only in his procreative power, you know, when it leads to the birth of a child, but also in God's unitive desire, the life of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loving one another. So, you know, the blessed sort of pure in heart applies to uh, all of us and about all aspects of our life and not just about the genital part of who we are as human beings. Yeah, that's a great way of looking at it. And again, pastoral issue in a highly sexualized world, I often feel that you know, young Christian men, young Christian women who aren't having sex, they're single, they're not having sex, the world makes them feel incomplete or inadequate. And it certainly the, does. It's the church's task to provide a context in which they realize they don't need to be having sex to be full and complete and beautiful human beings. They need to be channeling their desires to God. And I think the way you put that just so beautifully, when I read that passage, it wasn't as if I hadn't thought of that before, but it brought everything into focus for me. And it was extremely helpful. And I actually forwarded it to a few friends and said, what do you think of this? And uh, they thought that it was an incredibly uh, insightful, insightful comment. Well, this brings up the topic of sex education and families. You know, not having children of my own, I have no idea how difficult it is to be a a parent who wants to pass on the Christian understanding of human sexuality to a child. It must be very, very difficult because so few parents do it well or do it at all. I left and, it to my wife, actually, Archbishop. <laughs> I have the Englishman's inability to talk about these things. <laughs> so but we need to. I mean, we need to understand it in a way that uh, 
we're not embarrassed by it and somehow are able to communicate that to our children. Otherwise, they're going to pick up the worldly version of human sexuality and be frightened, actually, and be afraid and to run and hide from God. You know, one of the, the images in the story of Adam and Eve that I find most powerful is that once they had sinned, they, they ran and hid their nakedness from God. Before that, you know, their nakedness, you know, which could symbolize human transparency, but also could symbolize, you know, the comfortableness with our human sexuality. If we have a Christian understanding, you know, born of the, the teaching of Jesus and the Beatitudes that understands purity as a positive thing, that we're not so much ashamed about ourselves and our bodies and our human sexuality. It's so important to pass it on to children. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's very clear. Again, in in the book, you touch upon the writings of Wilhelm Reich. Oh, yes. Uh, a brilliant but, character. But yeah, very fascinating, but deeply wicked sort of Freudian psychoanalyst of the 1930s. And His did sexual- you know he died, he died in jail in Pennsylvania? I heard that. Was he selling some crazy orgasm machine or he something? He was. It, it was called a sex box. <laughs> yes. And he was accused of fraud and put in jail before um, it was all resolved. And he died there. Yeah. Well, he was an Austrian, you know, a disciple of uh, Sigmund Freud, psychoanalyst. And he wrote The Sexual Revolution in the 1930s. And the thing I mentioned in the book that I find most interesting is he said in that book that America is the best place for the sexual revolution. And, you know, why would that be the case? We always, when we were, <laughs> when we were younger, and we, I think people still do this, talked about Europe, especially the French being the place where the, the sexual revolution would have begun. But he, he associated the, the sexual revolution with, uh, with our heavy emphasis in our culture here, and even in our political origins on individual liberty. Mm. And what comes from that is the, the right to self-invention, and and we can change, you know, the meaning of things if we want to, because we're very creative people. I think he was right. You know, sexual revolution concretely has had more impact in the United States than it has in Europe, and I think that's because of our national character. Yeah, that's certainly the case. And, uh, of course, Reich also put his finger on sexual education as the way to transform society. Uh, He really did. He hated the family. He thought that parents were oppressive and that the state should take on the burden of teaching sexual ethics, which, of course, it essentially has done in the modern world. If your child claims to be transgender at school, the parent has no immediate right to know that, which essentially tells the parent, you have no immediate right to know who your child is. I think we live in a, in a Reichian nightmare on that level. And even, you know, the courts give children who are pregnant and want a, an abortion a right to make that decision without their parents being consulted. Much the same thing. Yeah. I mean, you talk as well in the, in the book about the moral lightness of the rising generation. And there's a great quotation, again, it's on page 127, drawing, I think, on Alistair McIntyre, a thinker I think we both appreciate and enjoy and have uh, have used. Um, You say, the moral conflicts that permeate our public policy debates are endless and irresolvable because our culture no longer has a rational, mutually accepted way of getting to moral agreement. And of course, that is exacerbated, I think, by this moral lightness of the rising generation. There is no moral narrative or agreed moral narrative taught in higher education anymore. It is that radical 
expressive individualist impulse that seems to be triumphing at this point. How do you see we could counter that? I mean, that seems such a huge behemoth of a thing. How do we, how do we inculcate moral seriousness and moral coherence in the younger generation? Well, you know, an even broader question, I think maybe it's the more fundamental question, is how do we get young people to think at all? You know, I, <laughs> yes. I, 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 in a classical sense of thinking, and uh, you know, desiring to read and to be curious and to and to value the knowledge of the past as a platform on which we might build our personal knowledge and the knowledge for the future. And you know, this preoccupation with uh, science and technology that has been so such a blessing can also be a curse because the only real valuable knowledge is scientific and technological knowledge. You know, scientists and technologists have become the new priesthood in our culture where people, you know, bow in the presence of uh, Apple and, and Microsoft and those kind of things. And you really aren't very interested in philosophy and the richness of our Western classical tradition, yeah. even history. There's not much love for history in our country or in our schools today. And I think that's, that's very unfortunate because the classical tradition really helps us to be full human beings. Yes, I noticed you. I think you did a Jackie commendation for Tony Esselin's new book on precisely that kind of issue. Of course, he's read in tooth and claw on the matter. But I, I first heard Tony at uh, St. Charles Borromeo Seminary in, in your lecture series last yes, year. Yes, that was an interesting talk. Oh, it was one of the best lectures I've ever heard. And I just, there was just that lovely Augustinian note that came through that, that knowledge naturally is curious. And to know something makes you want to know something else and want to know something more. And we do seem to have a generation where you know, knowledge has been replaced by aesthetics. It's not that people want to know more. It's they want the latest iPhone or the coolest looking gadget. Uh, aesthetics seem to have you know, not only supplanted morality in some ways, but also supplanted knowledge. It's, and even it's, knowledge of current events. You know, young adults that I know seldom read the newspaper. Yeah, and they're just not curious about the same things that I'm curious about. Now I'm not the, you know, the the point of reference for things like this, but you know, my generation of, of preachers grew up really believing that the best best way to be a preacher is to have the Bible in one hand and the, and the newspaper in the other, and to make sure that the what's going on in the newspaper is related somehow to what's going on in the scriptures. But uh, I don't think that our young seminarians today pay much attention to what's in the newspaper. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I think it's highly unfortunate. So it isn't just the knowledge of our rich Western tradition. It's even knowledge beyond one's personal sphere of friendship and personal interests. Yeah. There's not a lot of curiosity sometimes. Yes, my son, my youngest son, graduated from Georgetown recently. And I remember asking him, did you enjoy your time there? He loved the classes he took. It was kind of fun. And uh, you'll appreciate this. The Jesuit classes, uh, liberal theology classes, actually made him theologically conservative, which was fantastic <laughs> from my perspective. But the one comment he made was about his peers. He said, he said, I went to Georgetown because I wanted to learn. I love reading stuff outside of my discipline. I, he's a big fan of Graham Greene, J.R. Tolkien. He reads history. He said, I love just reading and learning. Most of my peers were there simply to make contacts to help them with their careers. And that, it wasn't some of the liberal politics that he couldn't abide that took place on campus that disillusioned him. It was the, the craven lack of curiosity 
among his contemporaries that sort of ate him away, I think. You've, you've so, raised a good son. Yeah, he's, uh, he's, he's fortunate to have you as a father. He's the brains of the family. Um, <laughs> but anyway. Well, I'm anxious uh, to meet him then. Oh, we can, that can be arranged. He's a banjo player, so his big ambition is to play oh. banjo with Robbie George at some point. I hope to, to do that next year at Princeton. So. That's, that's great fun. When I can't, it's hard for me to imagine Robbie George with a banjo in his hand, but when it's in his hands, he really knows how to play. Oh, yeah. Yeah, YouTube bears ample testimony to that. So. See, I, I, I'm not that familiar. I, you know, I know how to find YouTube things, but I don't live in that world very much, so I didn't realize he was on YouTube. That's, I'll have to take a look. Oh, yes. Yes. As we sort of start to draw things to a close here, here Archbishop, there's a couple more questions before my final one. A lot of noise at the moment about Rod Dreher's Benedict option. I kind of like a lot of what Dred, Rod Dreher says. Obviously, his model is more self-consciously monastic than would transport easily into a Protestant context. But I find Rod's approach in general terms, his emphasis upon community and the distinctiveness of the Christian community to be very compelling. How would you see your own project or your own book connecting uh, with Rod Dreher's Benedict option? Well, you know, Catholics have always um, had withdrawal from the world as part of our personal spirituality, but also part of our way of being Catholics in the world. The Catholic school system in the United States was created so that we might have our own Catholic space to teach our young people because there was a fear that if they went to public school, they would become Protestants, (laughs) which was a great fear of the Catholic Church at that time. And so even our Catholic school system, which was immense, you know, in Philadelphia, for example, at one time we had 267,000 kids in our Catholic school system. Wow. And taught by thousands of nuns. The school system was bigger than the public school system in Philadelphia at one time. And it was all this notion of let's pull aside, pull apart from the rest of the culture so that uh, we can be faithful to the gospel. You know, we have that example in Jesus going off into the hills with his disciples to pray right before making big decisions for the future of his ministry and the future of the church. So that's, you know, withdrawal, going on retreats. We've had a tradition of doing that. But, you know, where I would differ from Rod Dreher's approach is um, making withdrawal a substantive part of our Christian experience. What I imagine, and maybe it's just my imagination, when I read what he writes, is that the Christian community would become like the Mennonites, Hmm. you know, where we would just be different and be satisfied with being different from the culture around us. And I've always understood that the uh, call of Christians to be uh, to withdraw so that we can come back and then become uh, what we've often referred to in the Catholic Church as the soul of the world. You know, what the soul is to the human body, the church should be for the world around us. And you can't do that unless you're very much a part of the world. So I believe that, you know, we need to develop ways of protecting the faith by withdrawal. I think Christian homeschooling is another example of that today. And I imagine if I had a family and children, I would probably want them to be homeschooled because I'd be so afraid of what they would learn in the public school system. Mm. And sometimes our Catholic schools, unfortunately, aren't a whole lot better. In some places are spectacularly better, but not in, not in every place. But then I think the reason you do that, of course, is so that you can be a Christian in the world. And St. Augustine, you know, who I think was uh, the best bishop the church has ever had, really, what he did 
was extraordinary in a time where he didn't have people like St. Augustine to look up to, like I have. You know, everything I do is derivative of someone like him and St. Paul. And they had, to, they had to do it themselves for the first time. And, you know, he um, said it's important for us to be part of the city of man, knowing all the while that we're really destined to be the city of God. So, you know, we're like frogs who can see above the water and under the water with two different lenses. And I think it's really important for us. Now, you know, Rod Dreher is somebody I admire very much. He certainly is a serious Christian and very articulate man. And maybe in some ways I misunderstand um, the direction he wants to see the church go. If we withdraw, it's in order to come back. And I think mm. we have to find ways of supporting each other in, in communities of faith so that when we do come back, we're not alone and we're not lost. Yeah, I think it's a good point. And while I like the basic framework of Rod's idea, I think total withdrawal is just not an option. I mean, I in my congregation, we've got people with student loans and mortgages. We are all inextricably connected to the city of man. So it's hard to imagine what withdrawal would look like, even hypothetically. We have to earn money. We have to buy bread to feed our children. So it's not quite as straightforward, I think, perhaps as Rod sometimes makes it. But I appreciate the provocative way he presents his idea because yes. it really does make you think that we are moving, as your book makes very clear, we're moving into a very different world, a world that's changing so fast. Who can predict what it will look like in 10 years? Who would have predicted Caitlyn Jenner 10 years ago? Oh, yes. Uh, or even five years ago, perhaps. We do not know what territory we're heading into. And that brings me to my last question, Archbishop, and this, it, it's both a simple but perhaps a complicated question, and that is... Most, if not all, of our listeners are Protestants, probably Reformed Protestants or Evangelical Protestants. Why should a Protestant read your book? I love that it's unashamedly Catholic. You are who you say you are. I like that. But why should a Protestant read a book by a fearlessly Catholic archbishop? Well, I, you know, I firmly believe that those of us who try to be Orthodox Christians, and that's, it's really important to say that today because, you know, I just came back from a rally in center city, Philadelphia, supporting the Jewish community at a time of difficulty because one of the cemeteries here was seriously vandalized yeah. recently. And as you know, there's been a lot of anti-Semitic talk and actions in our country today. But, you know, it was a gathering of all world religions, actually. And I'm a part of the, um, the religious leaders of Philadelphia. And uh, the majority of us would be Christians, but there are a lot of other religious bodies represented but I find that, you know, among the Christian groups in that body, there are few and fewer and fewer that I have much in common with. You know, the only thing we can ever talk about are things like gun control and housing. We can't talk about any theological issues because we don't have common ground. And so I, no, I don't think my book would be very useful to people who are not Orthodox Christians. But those of us who are Orthodox Christians really do have 98% of the common heritage that we ascribe to and should be grateful for. And we can learn from one another in uh, very important ways. The Catholics can learn from Protestants in very important ways. But, you know, the example of that that is most vivid in my life is uh, love for scripture. You know, it's always been part of the Catholic life, but it certainly has been a lot more clearly emphasized since the Vatican Council, but driven by, by the example of your community and other communities who have had the, the love of the Word of God as a kind of predominant focus of their 
their life together and their ministry. So I think I have to learn a lot from you and I hope you can learn a lot from me. And I think the more we can support each other, the better, because we're going to need each other. We're not going to, I don't just need fellow Catholics. I need fellow Christians in this strange world in which we live. And if we're going to be together in a strange world, if we're going to be strangers, we should be strangers together. Well, on that note, thanks very much for, for joining us, Archbishop. I was delighted the other week when the first hit piece on your book came out in the Philadelphia Inquirer that they indicated that you declined them an interview. I was absolutely, as we would say in England, I was chuffed to know that you were being interviewed by our podcast when you turned down the Philadelphia Inquirer. But it's uh, <laughs> always enjoy our interactions. Uh, it's been a real delight uh, interviewing you for this program. I do want to recommend to our listeners, please go out and get a copy of Strangers in a Strange Land. It's an extremely important read. The analysis of culture is fascinating, and the proposals, while many of them are distinctively Catholic, are definitely ones that Protestants can build on or borrow from. So I recommend the book to you. If you are listening, please visit our website, mortificationofspin.org. And remember, we're a listener-supported podcast, so if you'd like to make a donation, if you could make a donation, please press on the donation button on the web page and make a donation for us. In the meantime, I want to thank you for listening. Thanks especially to Archbishop Chaput for taking time out of his busy schedule to be with us today. And we look forward to being with you all again next time. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, the podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... I think pastors and church leaders ministry leaders have maybe overestimated their ability to spot a predator. Uh, You commit a crime as a Christian, you're going to be disciplined by the church. But the state too has a right to punish you. Fear of of what this was going to do to the church. Is it going to split the church? Are people going to leave the church? You know, you see the changes happening with um, half doors being put in and windows and and all these things. And it's to hear then from people within the church Thank you for protecting us. Thank you for watching out for us. That interview is next time. Join us then.